A criminology professor in Florida uses her background as an FBI agent to teach students about criminal profiling and forensic psychology with real-life cases. A California couple recount their harrowing experience of kidnap and ransom, along with the shocking realization that the police believe they've perpetrated a hoax. And a group of online sleuths become determined to uncover the identity of a man found deceased in a camping tent in Florida. Who was he? And why was no one looking for him? Each of these stories are featured in true crime documentaries and docuseries now available on streaming services. There is much to love about North and South Carolina, but the two states have also had their fair share of violent and senseless crimes over the years. From murders on the Blue Ridge Parkway, in the heart of big cities or sleepy college towns, and along the coastal waters, some of these stories may be new to you. Some may have happened in your town. Some may involve people that are still missing to this day. But all will leave you remembering to always be vigilant about the people you meet and the places you go. I'm Renee Robertson. Please join me for Missing in the Carolinas. Episode 86, a review of The Lesson is Murder, American Nightmare, and They Called Him Mostly Harmless. Today I'm talking about a few different true crime documentaries and series that I think fans of this podcast would enjoy. I tried to make selections from a few different streaming services, since I know most of us don't have access to everything available. I'll be discussing the Hulu series The Lesson is Murder, the Netflix documentary American Nightmare, and the Max documentary They Called Him Mostly Harmless. I'll start off with The Lesson is Murder since it first aired this past spring. I only recently discovered it as I was searching the true crime category on the streaming service. I think true crime fans interested in the psychological profiles of criminals will find it enlightening. The show features three episodes and is centered around a retired FBI agent and psychological criminologist, Dr. Brianna Fox, who also works as an associate professor at the University of South Florida. In the show, she works with a team of graduate students specializing in different crime-related fields to analyze convicted murderers' personality traits as a way to develop psychological profiles. Fox told the University of South Florida in a news release she got the idea for the show from a forensic psychology class she taught at USF in 2018. While she was teaching her students the fundamentals of psychological criminology, they applied what they learned to investigate a real cold case. She said the students ended up breaking open that cold case during the class. The first episode features William Davis, a former nurse from Tyler, Texas, who was convicted of killing four different patients by injecting air into their arterial systems. The second episode shares the story of a police officer in Texas named Robert Frada, convicted in orchestrating the murder of his estranged wife, Farah, in 1994. Episode 3 profiles Ivy DeMolina, a 27-year-old college recruiter turned sex worker and dominatrix who was arrested along with four other people for the murders of James Politis and Joseph Fiametta in New Jersey and New York. In each episode, Fox and her team gather information from co-workers, acquaintances, family members of the criminal, and law enforcement. Once they analyze all the data and interviews, Fox goes to interview the convicted killer in prison. I like the way the show is formatted and shows the viewer how all the pieces of the puzzle come together, and the interviews give you real insight into the mind of a killer. I was surprised at how open and honest these interviews were, 
and if I'm to be frank, a little unnerving. For example, William Davis inadvertently admitted his guilt in a murder no one knew he had committed during his prison interview. Robert Frada showed no remorse for his role in his crime, continued to deny his guilt, and had no problem demeaning his wife, Farah, and basically blaming her for her own death. Ivy de Molina's story explores how unprocessed sexual trauma from childhood led her down a dark path. Was it the cause of her becoming a murderer? I recommend checking out the series if criminal profiling is something you like studying. Next, I want to talk about American Nightmare, streaming on Netflix. If you haven't already watched it, here's a slight spoiler alert that I'll be talking about some of the major plot points from the documentary in this episode. First off, I had never heard of this case before, so I'm thankful for the documentarians Felicity Morris and Bernadette Higgins, who also produced The Tinder Swindler, for shedding light on what happened to Denise Huskins and Aaron Quinn on March 23, 2015. Denise and Aaron, who both worked at the same hospital as physical therapists, were asleep at his home in Vallejo, California, when they were awakened by a blinding light in the bedroom. Aaron later told police he could make out at least one person dressed in a wetsuit, calmly telling the couple that they were going to be part of a kidnapping and robbery. Aaron and Denise were bound and drugged with what appeared to be cold medicine. Aaron was told not to contact the police and that the kidnappers would reach out to him later with the ransom demand. When Aaron awoke hours later, both Denise and his car were gone. Disoriented and confused about what to do, he waited several hours before calling 911, which made the police suspicious. They immediately zeroed in on him as a suspect, believing he had done something to Denise, interrogating him for hours, even giving him a lie detector test, which they told him he failed miserably. All the while, they had seized his cell phone and missed two calls from the kidnappers with the ransom details. At the same time, police had organized a massive search for Denise in the area near Aaron's home. Dive teams and search dogs scoured the Mare Island Strait and continued through the night. Denise had been transferred from Aaron's car into another one and driven out of town to another location. Once she was returned to her hometown two days later after being subjected to a videotaped sexual assault more than once, she was petrified and afraid to talk to the police because the kidnapper had told her not to. Denise decided to consult with an attorney after learning that the police were skeptical of her story, and that's when she was accused of orchestrating her own disappearance, like the fictional character Amy Dunn in the 2014 David Fincher movie Gone Girl. Gone Girl was based on the book written by Gillian Flynn, where a wife stages what looks like her own murder and disappearance in an attempt to frame her cheating husband. The plot twist was a shock to most people who read it, including myself, because the character of Amy Dunn is a very unreliable narrator, a fact you don't realize until at least halfway through the book. In fact, the Vallejo police spokesman, Lieutenant Kenny Park, told reporters, Mr. Quinn and Ms. Huskins have plundered valuable resources away from our community and taken the focus away from the true victims of our community while instilling fear in our community members. We wasted all these resources on basically nothing. I went back into the newspaper archives from 2015 to get an idea of what the local California media was reporting as this was discussed at length in the docuseries. Here is an article that ran in the Los Angeles Times on March 26, 2015. Ryan Parker and Veronica Rocha were the authors of this piece. 
The headline was, Alleged Kidnap Was a Hoax, Cops Say. Here's the text of the article. Denise Huskins was reportedly kidnapped from her boyfriend's home, held for ransom, and found safe Wednesday, 420 miles south in Huntington Beach. Today, there is no evidence to support the claims that this was a stranger abduction at all, authorities said in a statement Wednesday night. Given the facts that have been presented thus far, this event appears to be an orchestrated event and not a crime. Initially, police believed Huskins was going to cooperate with their investigation and with the FBI, arranged for a jet to fly her to Northern California for an interview, according to the statement. But now, police have been unable to locate or contact Huskins or members of her family. Ms. Huskins has since retained an attorney and detectives are unaware of her location, the statement said. Huskins was found in good condition at a relative's house in Huntington Beach, police officer Jennifer Marlott said. Huskins told her father in a voicemail left Wednesday morning that she was at her mother's house in Huntington Beach and walking to her uncle's house nearby. The message, according to her cousin Amy Madison, said, Daddy, I'm okay. They dropped me off at mom's house, but she's not there, so I'm walking to your house right now. Meanwhile, another tenant in the building called Mike Huskins to report that she was with him. The neighbor told the woman's father, I've got her. I'm calling 911. Later Wednesday, the San Francisco Chronicle released an audio recording of a woman identifying herself as Denise Huskins, who said she had been abducted. My name is Denise Huskins and I'm kidnapped. Otherwise, I'm fine, the woman says calmly on the recording, which the Chronicle obtained Tuesday. The woman established a time frame by referring to the deadly German Wings plane crash in the French Alps. She also provided personal details about herself. Her boyfriend, Aaron Quinn, told police that Huskins was kidnapped early Monday and that a ransom demand was communicated during the abduction. Huskins was allegedly abducted sometime between midnight and 5 a.m., but Quinn didn't contact police until almost 2 p.m. Quinn, 30, told police he saw her forcibly taken against her will from his home. A car registered to Quinn was also taken, but later found. That's the end of the article. Just a few months after Denise and Aaron were vilified by the Vallejo police and the local media, a man arrested for a home invasion and attempted kidnapping in nearby Dublin, California, was also discovered to be the mastermind behind Denise Huskins' kidnapping. American Nightmare is told through three separate 45-minute episodes. The first recounts the story from Aaron Quinn's perspective. The second is Denise telling her side of what happened, including being accused of faking her own kidnapping by the police. And the third episode details how the real kidnapper grew frustrated with the police's treatment of Denise and contacted local reporters himself to tell his version of the events anonymously. I won't share all the information about the kidnapper because it is covered in American Nightmare, but I will say I still have a lot of questions about this case. Aaron and Denise believe there was more than one kidnapper, even though only one person was arrested and charged. I tend to believe there was only one based on some of the evidence that was found. I'm also curious as to why the kidnapper originally told Aaron his ransom target had been Aaron's ex-fiancee, Andrea, who had previously lived with Aaron, but they decided to take Denise instead. And why was Denise returned safely despite there being no ransom delivered? Was the main motivation for the crime sexual assault and psychological manipulation? One of the reasons I appreciated this documentary is because it highlights the issue that females are often accused of lying in the cases of kidnapping and sexual assault. 
They can be treated suspiciously by law enforcement and members of the media. And while there are a few bad apples out there, like Sherry Papini, who I'll discuss next, and the recent case of Carly Russell from Birmingham, Alabama, they are few and far between. I thought it was interesting that it even took a female police officer from another precinct to actually make the connections tying the man arrested for the attempted kidnapping to Denise's case. So now I want to mention the real kidnapping hoax perpetrated by another California resident, 34-year-old Sherry Papini, back in 2016. Denise's kidnapping occurred in Vallejo, about three and a half hours away from where Sherry lived in Redding. That story made national headlines. I remember seeing it everywhere. For reference, I never heard about Denise's kidnapping, which took place a year before, even when it was proved to not be a hoax. In Sherry Papini's case, she was a young married mom of two who appeared to go missing on November 2, 2016, while out for a jog. Her husband couldn't find her when he returned home from work that day, and using the Find My iPhone feature on his phone, he located hers, along with the earbuds she was using, in an area about a mile from their house. A lock of her blonde hair was found with them. He reported her missing to the police, fearing the worst. Searches for her turned up no leads. On Thanksgiving Day, Sherry flagged down a motorist on the side of the road about 150 miles from her home. She was still wearing restraints, had lost a lot of weight, had her hair cut off, and also had visible injuries all over her body. She told police she had been abducted by two Hispanic women at gunpoint, taken to an undisclosed location, starved, abused, and even branded. The FBI assisted in the case. Investigators found both female and male DNA on Sherry's clothing and body when she returned. But parts of her story didn't add up, and people were skeptical. Eventually, police linked some of that male DNA found on Sherry to an ex-boyfriend of hers named James Reyes. When they contacted him, he had admitted Sherry had been staying with him the whole time she was allegedly kidnapped. She told him she was in an abusive marriage and needed to get away from her home. He picked her up on the morning she disappeared. But once they were at his apartment, he said she began acting strangely. She stopped eating, and he claimed she inflicted all the injuries onto herself. They did not go outside the apartment together during that time and did normal mundane things like order takeout food and watch television. He was confused about what she was doing, and then on Thanksgiving, she told him she was ready to go back home and asked him to drop her off in a public place. Sherry Papini met with an FBI agent on August 13, 2020, and continued to stick to her story even when they told her it was a crime to lie to federal agents. On April 12, 2022, she was charged with 34 counts of mail fraud and one count of making false statements. On April 18, 2022, she pleaded guilty to a single count of mail fraud and one count of making false statements. Sherry was ordered to pay back over $309,000 in restitution for losses incurred by the California Victim Compensation Board, the Social Security Administration, the Shasta County Sheriff's Office, and the FBI. She collected nearly $130,000 in disability payments after the kidnapping hoax and had received psychiatric care for anxiety, depression, and post-traumatic stress disorder, totaling at least $30,000 in value. At the time of her sentencing, Sherry's defense attorney, William Portanova, said the following, Ms. Papini's chameleonic personalities drove her to simultaneously crave family security and the freedom of youth. 
So in pursuit of a nonsensical fantasy, the attorney said the married mother fled to a former boyfriend in Southern California, nearly 600 miles south of her home in Redding. He dropped her off along Interstate 5, about 150 miles from her residence, after she said that she wanted to return home. The prosecutors for the case said Papini's kidnapping hoax was deliberate, well-planned, and sophisticated. And she was still falsely telling people she was kidnapped, prosecutors said, months after she pleaded guilty to staging the abduction and lying to the FBI about it. Sherry Papini served 10 months in a federal prison and was released in October of 2023 under 36 months of supervised release. Her husband, Keith, filed for divorce the same month she pleaded guilty to the fraud charges and was granted sole custody of their two children. Before we continue, let's take a quick break for a word from our sponsors. I'm a huge fan of the skincare products by SkinX Erin. You've heard me talk about them here before. I use their pre-cleanse oil, hydrating beauty oil, and perfecting night oil each day, and I swear my skin looks at least 10 years younger. I love that these products don't leave my skin feeling greasy and are loaded with squalene oil and vitamins E and A. Plus, they are extremely affordable, their customer service can't be beat, and the positive affirmations they include in the packaging are so uplifting. Go ahead and treat yourself with 10% off your order using my code MISSINGCAROLINAS10. I'll include a link in the show notes for you. True crime is more popular than ever, thanks to documentaries, podcasts, and media outlets that produce gripping crime stories. This is great news for writers wanting to explore this market. Crime narratives are not only compelling for consumers, but they can also help find justice for victims, their families, and the community. In fiction, using true crime elements and journalistic techniques can help deepen the storyline and add authenticity to characters and plot. Do you enjoy reading and consuming true crime content and would love to find a way to write and publish your own? In a webinar I'll be teaching through WOW Women on Writing this spring, I'll share how to find story ideas, how you can use true crime elements in nonfiction and fiction, where to pitch your true crime work, and more. You also have an opportunity to send an article outline or project pitch to me for feedback. The webinar will take place on March 14, 2024, from 7 to 8.30 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, and will be recorded for those who can't attend in person. The cost is $45, and there are a limited number of spots, so register today at wow-womenonwriting.com and click on the Classes tab. And now, let's get back to the show. Next, I want to talk about the documentary, They Called Him Mostly Harmless, now showing on the Max streaming service. I wanted to watch this documentary because the story of an unidentified hiker found deceased in Florida several years ago caught my attention back in 2020, and I wrote a blog post on my website, finishedpages.com, about the case. Here's what I wrote November 3rd of that year. On July 23rd, 2018, two hikers came across a small yellow tent at a place called Nobles Camp in the Big Cypress Yellow Preserve in South Florida. When they saw a lone pair of boots outside the tent, coupled with a decaying smell, they felt something was off. Peeking in through the windscreen, they discovered an emaciated and lifeless body staring up at them. The mystery of who this lone hiker was is enduring and frustrating for both the investigators with the Collier County Sheriff's Office and Internet sleuths. Plenty of people encountered the hiker, who began his trek at a state park just north of New York City. He traveled on the Appalachian Trail all the way south through Florida. 
He carried a gigantic backpack and notebook where he jotted down notes about an online programming game called Screeps. He told people he met along the way that he was taking a digital detox from life and his job in the tech industry. He went by the names Denim and then later Mostly Harmless because that's what he considered himself to be. He had also used the alias Ben Bellamy at times. Mostly Harmless continued hiking through Virginia and northern Georgia, where he stopped in a store one day in December 2017 for supplies and began chatting with an employee. He mentioned wanting to keep hiking down to the Florida Keys, and when the employee, Matt Mason, told him there was an app with the route he could download to his phone, Mostly Harmless shared that he was traveling without a phone. Mason printed out a 60-page route for him to follow and snapped a photograph of the hiker. Mostly Harmless met various people along the way, always friendly, even if he had a rugged and lonely look about him. It was hard to tell his age because, though his eyes seem young, his scraggly black beard was threaded through with streaks of gray. By eyewitness reports, Mostly Harmless had made it to Florida by late January 2018. When the hikers found his body in July, he had more than $3,500 cash in his tent, his hiking gear, two notebooks, but nothing that would point to his identity. At the time of his death, the medical examiner approximated he was between 35 to 50 years old, had blue-gray eyes, stood 5 feet 8 inches tall, and weighed only 83 pounds. The cause of death was listed as undetermined, but investigators believe he died as a result of malnutrition, which was puzzling because he had the resources to purchase food and other supplies. Investigators have not been able to find any leads that this man had been reported missing. Despite extensive media coverage and the sharing of the story on social media, Mostly Harmless remains unidentified. The Collier County Sheriff's Department recently partnered with a private DNA lab in Texas in an effort to create a family tree using a public database and genetic material from the unidentified man's body. Results from that partnership are still pending. The Collier County Sheriff's Department also featured this case on their podcast, Sworn Statement. Anyone with information about the hiker is asked to call the non-emergency line of the Sheriff's Office at 239-252-9300. On February 1st, 2021, I shared an update on the identity of Mostly Harmless on my blog. It read, Back in November, I shared a post about an unidentified hiker who passed away in the summer of 2018 in the Big Cypress Yellow Preserve in South Florida. His case was mysterious because many people had encountered him on the Appalachian Trail during his journey and described him as friendly but reserved. He told people to call him Denim and mostly harmless and also used the alias Bill Bellamy. When discovered, he appeared to have died of starvation and had more than $3,000 cash on him. What he didn't have in his possession was any identification, a cell phone, or credit cards. His story gained national media attention and internet sleuths were determined to find out who this man was and give him back his identity. A genomics company called Othram took the unidentified man's DNA and used the results from the GEDmatch database to build a tree of potential relatives. This search led to the discovery that Mostly Harmless had Cajun roots from Louisiana. This past December, photographs of the man made their way to a group of friends in Baton Rouge who called the Collier County Sheriff's Office in Florida to report they thought Mostly Harmless was Vance John Rodriguez, an IT professional and coder who had moved from Louisiana to New York in 2013. 
A Wired writer named Nicholas Thompson invested a lot of time reporting on Vance Rodriguez and wrote a final footnote to this story a few weeks ago. It appears Rodriguez had wrestled with demons almost his entire life, even attempting suicide by shooting himself in the stomach at age 15, and had battled bouts of depression and rocky relationships with girlfriends. In all actuality, if you accept the allegations from the women in his past, there were times when he was the farthest thing from mostly harmless. Did he simply throw up his hands one day and decide to give up the online video gaming and coding of his world and seek solace on the Appalachian Trail? When his landlord finally went into his apartment eight months after he left New York City, he found unopened food, personal belongings, and the man's identification. No note or boxed up items were present. Did those demons win a final confrontation when he starved to death in that yellow tent in a national state park in Florida? One of Rodriguez's friends told reporters that the last thing he would have ever wanted was to become a national media story. Hopefully this final bit of identification can lay the mystery to rest and help those who need to heal from his death begin to do so. That's the end of my blog post. The documentary, They Called Him Mostly Harmless, directed by Patricia Gillespie, delves into the world of online sleuthing, which is how Vance Rodriguez eventually got his name back. But this world of amateur detectives, which I sometimes have mixed feelings about, if I'm to be honest, is not without its drama. The documentary runs a little over 90 minutes long and features interviews with two of the main women behind the online sleuthing efforts, the owners of the Othram Genomics Company, law enforcement from Collier County, and people who met Mostly Harmless along the Appalachian Trail, many of whom took photos with the elusive stranger. Two of the online sleuths featured in this documentary are Christy Harris and Natasha Teasley. Christy began moderating a Facebook group about Mostly Harmless, and Natasha took over the group after dissension among the members caused Christy to leave it. They both separately continued their investigation into the man's identity, despite their disagreements. Natasha, who is from Durham, North Carolina, helped start a GoFundMe to help the Collier County Sheriff's Department do the genetic testing on Mostly Harmless's remains. The director of this documentary really wanted to focus on the idea of how a community can help solve crimes, and I think that's what makes this documentary stand out. First, you have the community of people who love the outdoors, hiking, and disconnecting with nature. They embrace one another and find kinship in places like the Appalachian Trail. Then you have the true crime community who wants to find out the identity of a person so they can get their name back and be returned to their loved ones. Here's what Patricia Gillespie told ABC News about her goal in creating this documentary. She said, As a filmmaker, I tried to go in with questions rather than answers. But what started to emerge to me was that to me, the real story wasn't about the details of this private citizen who had unfortunately died under these mysterious circumstances. It was about who he became as sort of this cipher on the internet that all these people, the hikers, the sleuths, poured an idea into. And it was usually an idea of him being who they needed him to be, or wanted him to be, or wished him to be. And we do that so much online. Advances in technology and the use of the internet and social media have helped many unidentified people get their names back in recent years, and I think this documentary is a great example that it takes a village to do so. This brings us to the conclusion of this episode of Missing in the Carolinas. If you enjoyed this episode, please do me a favor and give it a five-star rating wherever you listen to your podcasts. 
We're also on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube, so please like our pages and get started on a discussion of the missing people profiled on the show. Do you know of a missing persons case in North or South Carolina that you think should be covered? Email me at missingintheCarolinas at gmail.com with any details you can share. Don't forget to check out our sponsor, WOW Women on Writing, and the great programs and writing contests they have to support writers at wow-womenonwriting.com. Treat yourself to a skincare kit from SkinX Aaron with my code MissingCarolinas10. Cover art for this podcast was designed by Macintosh Multimedia. Sound editing is provided by Daniel Robertson. Thanks so much for listening. Thank you.